Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Today I have with me uh, a special guest and actually a really good friend, and she is a writer with a master's in social work, a personal coach. She's the host of the podcast Truth and Consequences and the creator of the website and online platform, The Second Wound. Uh, I have today with me Miranda Pacchiana. How are you? I'm good. And you did a great job pronouncing my name, Shonda. Thank you. You know, as a person who has their name mispronounced uh, so often, uh, I try really, really hard. Yeah. <laughs> so, Even when you try, sometimes it's hard, though, I know, as a as a uh, podcast host myself. But it's yeah. a pleasure to, to be here. I'm so excited to talk with you on your podcast this time. Awesome. So um, I am going to start with you the way I do with all of my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? Well, yeah, that's um, a great question. And I would say that my labor of love is the work that I've been doing for the past um, many years, which is pulling back the curtain on what I call the second wound, which is a type of re-victimization that's prevalent, very painful and persistent, and not really talked about publicly. So It's really important to me to address it because those of us who suffer with the second wound generally feel alone and powerless to fix it. So that's what I've been devoting myself to. And it's um, it's healing for myself at the same time that I'm excited to be able to help others. It's so amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And we'll we'll spend a good deal of time diving into what you mean by the second wound. Um, But I do just want to shout out Jamie Cyrus. Um, He has been a guest on the Labors of Love podcast. We met and kind of instantly knew that we needed to be in each other's lives. Um, So we talked and- So great. Yeah, I love Jamie. And he, after we met our initial time and talked for a while, connected me to you as one of those people, like you should know her. You, You two need to know each other. And I think we kind of shared that we both, we responded to the intro email. It was very nice. Hey, Mm -hmm. cool. You know, I looked you up, you looked me up and Mm -hmm. life kind of just kept happening. Um, After Jamie and I's podcast, um, you heard it and you reached out for me to be on yours. And I was so excited because even though life didn't allow me to pause in it enough, when I went to your website and platform, The Second Wound, um, I was struck by how important the work you do is for people across the board, but how it's impacted me personally. And so I am so excited about today for us to kind of dive into not just, you know, how you help others, but a little bit about our own experiences that can maybe help people feel so not alone. So yes, yeah, I'm, I'm super you. excited. 
Me too. And I second that um, shout out to Jamie Cyrus for that wonderful intro. And yeah, I, when I heard you on his show, I was just, um, I was so excited to hear what you had to say and impressed. And I was like, I need to get this woman on my show. And you graciously complied and came on. It was great. So. Yeah. And, and I, we've developed, you know, I would say a friendship from that and I just yeah. how we can be supportive of one another. So um, Miranda, tell the, uh, the listeners kind of what you mean by the second wound um, and how this kind of came to be a labor of love for you. Okay. So the second wound is just the, um, phrase that I coined to describe an experience that I had myself um, and later found out that a lot of people were having and it just wasn't really being talked about publicly. And um, to sum it up, it's basically a type of re-victimization that happens to those of us who have suffered sexual abuse and sexual assault. And not just in the way that you might imagine when you see it, um, you know, victim blaming in the public and things like that, which we're all familiar with, especially since the Me Too movement. But on a more personal level, um, my case, in my case, I was sexually abused by an older brother in my household. And when I came to terms with that as a young adult, well, as an adult in my early 20s, um, and disclosed it to my family... I thought that we were going to address it together and work on it and work to find out what had gone wrong and how to heal and that my family would, you know, be respectful of my experience and my needs. And um, while they never disbelieved me, that's not how it ended up playing out at all. And so what, what I've learned over the years are really common responses to survivors like myself um, whether it's sexual abuse or sexual assault, when loved ones respond to us this way, they tend to either not believe us at all or believe us and yet brush it under the rug, essentially minimize it. And sometimes it doesn't start out that way. And in my case, I thought that my family was responding well at first. Um, and other um, responses that really can be painful are being scapegoated in the family and seen as the one who's really the troublemaker because we uh, pay attention to the abuse. We want to talk about it. We want to talk about the implications. You know, do, do we need to protect minors in the family um, in case this happens again? Um, we want to hold abusers accountable and we want to address it essentially. And so when families aren't prepared to do that, they will often scapegoat us as the ones making trouble when really that is so upside down because abusers are the ones who are causing the problems. Um, and there's silencing, there's shaming, there's essentially victim blaming, there's ostracism from family events is one that I've heard about a lot and experienced myself when the abuser often will be invited and of course, it's very uncomfortable for those of us who were victimized by them. So we're either just told to deal with it or not invited, things like that. Um, and these responses are, they, they last often a long time. You know, you, you can't change your family's attitudes on your own. You don't really have the power to do that. 
Um, often it can just go on way longer than the abuse itself. For, for many people, they tell me it's worse than the abuse itself. And um, it's just really painful. And so I'm happy to be able to reach people who feel confused and alone by these things and be able to open up discussions about it. Such, uh, he said so much there. (laughs) And and like, and and just in a, my, you know, I was, my mind was going in so many different directions and, um, I know the feeling as a podcast host. Yeah. You're just like, Oh, that street, that street, that street. How do I rind them all? Like put it in a Mm -hmm. cul-de-sac and make sure we get it all. But, um, I think so a couple of things that, uh, came to mind, when you were talking about it is the many ways in which it manifests mm-hmm. and even ones that weren't named, but just mm-hmm. this idea that when something bad happens to us um, and specifically sexual abuse or sexual assault, that is um, that is the event. Mm-hmm. But that's not, once that event ends, that is not, the full picture, um, being able to, so I, I understand this intellectually. I understood what I'm about to say intellectually, but there've been some recent events in my life and in, um, introspection and looking back and I'm, I'm writing now more about my life and preparing to put this all together in book form. And as I'm doing this process, I fully understood in my body, what I have always known in my mind. And I want to help people understand that trauma is not the event. Mm -hmm. Trauma is the worldviews, the belief systems and the behaviors that develop because of the event. That's right. And live in our bodies. It is that internal experience that is trauma. And I think we miss the mark so often as professionals, as friends, as society, as a culture, when we only focus on the event. 9-11 wasn't the trauma. It was how the entire nation changed Mm -hmm. as a result of those airplanes hitting buildings, you know? And so when I hear the second wound um, and as you describe it and the work you do with it, it is so needed and important because we are hardwired to connect as human beings. Mm -hmm. And when we go to what should be our safest places, which is our family, exactly. We are expecting connection and help and healing and And protection, protection. which is what (laughs) we didn't get usually in the first place. Yep. And when we not only don't get those things, but on top of that are all the other experiences you named. It's devastating. Um, It is. And it's, it's devastating also because it's a type of re-victimization that gets right to the heart of the, uh, the original trauma itself. So there are echoes of overpowering of silencing. Mm Mm-hmm. And those, the lack of protection, those things are at the heart of what's so painful about sexual abuse and assault. And to have that played out again with no foreseeable endpoint is really an enormous struggle. And I'm, I'm really driven to draw attention to it because the more I do, the more I hear from people that this is part of their lives and they don't know where to go with it. 
And it, because, you know, it needs to be yeah. addressed. Because they're still seeking all the things they were seeking when they went to their family. Yeah, now, exactly. you know, they still need that. And um, why I love working with families, mm-hmm. multi-generational families, is because, and don't get me wrong, I, I work with individuals and couples. And with an individual, I can bring that person into a safe environment and create uh, the the safety and the space they need to yeah. walk through some of these things and heal and understand that they weren't their fault and, and make sense of it and meaning making all of that stuff. But then they still are part of a family system that is right. not often cohesive or conducive to their healing. Why I love families is because so much of it is wrapped up in the template of the family. You know, it really is a house of cards. And- yeah. So if you're, if you, if you have a client that is dealing with these types of things, you can only do so much. Is that, is that sort of what you're touching on? Yeah. Yeah. I can, that individual person can, can really move in healing and things, but it doesn't address the second wound. It doesn't address the right. family. So by having the family together, I want to look at helping them understand how the original abuse took place in the first place, the family yeah. dynamics that were in place, the system that made it possible for it to take place, and let's explore why it's so difficult to come to terms with it. Oh, exactly. These are the this is the heart of what goes wrong and what needs to be addressed. I love hearing that. Yeah, and let's go back to the generations ago that, you know, planted the seed of secrecy, of denial, of of all these things. There are so many times, so many things underneath of four families. There are there maybe really the older are. families that member that says, well, I mean, this, this, and this happened to me. And not in a so get over it way necessarily as much as this is just what happens. Yeah, exactly. This is what happens. And also, I don't want to face it. So don't bring it up and make me have to face it. Yeah. And if it wasn't a big deal for me, then it needs not be a big deal for you. Oh, I've that pushback. And the removal of one card makes the whole thing come down. And sometimes our pain, the victim's pain, is the one card people won't remove. And that it feels so terrible. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> it, it, but I acknowledge the the complexity of the family system and how that contributes to all of this. Yeah. One thing that I also want to throw out there is that I see a lot because it's so ingrained in our culture is patriarchy and misogyny, mm-hmm. I think has a lot to do with this. Um, I think I personally feel that that is a component in my own family. I think that males are favored. And if you asked my family members if that is their belief system, they would absolutely and genuinely say no. But I still see that it plays out that way. Oh, absolutely. And that takes us further, which we will not go to, but the fabric of this country, the yeah. fabric of the the air we breathe and and how just white supremacy and patriarchy mm-hmm. and all of these things are so ingrained in so everything ingrained. that we don't even see it as it is because it just is a fish does not know it's wet. It yeah, just, I agree. I do hope that that is changing somewhat. I mean, I feel like I have learned a huge amount on both those topics in the last say five years, things that I, 
I'm sort of shocked that I wasn't woke to at the time, you know, which is not to say that I consider myself woke because I don't think, I think that's one thing I will always strive to get. And I don't think that you can ever sit back and say you've achieved it. Yeah. It's ever that's moving. just a side note. Yeah. And just, you know, but there is hope when we immerse ourselves into this. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about kind of um, on a practical speaking standpoint, how your platform and your work, what does that look like? Um, How does it impact this area? You know, how does it help people? Yeah. Okay. Well, I started out um, when I was really immersed in my own pain and confusion um, as an individual and as a person with Uh, as a mental health professional, I started seeking out information about what I was going through, just Googling it and looking in uh, professional journals and trying to find articles or books about this. And I really was stumped. I couldn't find hardly anything about it. I I would say um, the one book that I find helpful on this topic is The Courage to Heal, which is sort of the Bible of sexual abuse survivors. And they do address family issues in there really beautifully. So I often do recommend that book to people. Um, But aside from that, I realized that I was going to have to start writing about it and using my own experience um, as a jumping off point to learn more about it and understand it. And Would so you, and before, let me, did you consider yeah. yourself a writer before that? Like, were you a writer um, who said, I need to write about this? Or did you become a writer because you needed to fill a void? I always loved writing and I always did really well on my papers and, you know, college and grad school and was complimented on my writing. And I think I secretly wanted to be a writer. I think I sort of didn't admit it to myself. Um, It wasn't really something I felt encouraged to do. And so I had actually, yeah, I had decided that I was going to use that interest and that talent to reach people. And, um, you know, originally I decided I wanted to write a book and that is hopefully still in the works. I do have an, a literary agent and we're looking to make that happen. Um, but I started writing articles and getting them published in, online, you know, Huffington Post and things like that. And um, people began reaching out to me and telling me their stories. And so I then began, um, started with a Facebook page and began the social media platform And as I started putting messages out there about it on the social media and in my articles, and I started hearing more and more from people who were like, I can't believe you're, you're talking about this. I've looked everywhere. I am living this and your, your story is so much like my story. And they were very relieved and, um, oh, and so the more people told me about their experiences and we dialogued, the more I learned. And it began to just form a phenomenon that I could really pinpoint and see how it happened. And I wrote a couple of articles for a publication called Psych Central um, that I probably have the largest reach of anything I've ever written in terms of people finding me through these articles. Um, One of them is called seven ways family members re-victimize sexual abuse survivors. It's kind of a handful of a title, but um, it sums Mm -hmm. it all up. Um, And another one called reasons family members side with sexual abusers, because that's a huge component of it often. 
So um, it's just grown over the years. And um, I also started uh, personal coaching services because so many people were reaching out to me looking for help and support. And so I have a coaching practice on the side where it's all telecounseling or video chat counseling. Um, and I'm able to understand what people are experiencing. Often they, they reach out to me, even if they have a therapist or a trauma therapist, especially. And I think that's great. Um, they often want someone who just really gets this thing that they're going through because it is so specific and so Uh impactful. So that's where we are today. That is so amazing. And I, I thank you for taking that leap with your interest in, in, in writing. Um, I think the words are important. I'm becoming more and more aware of the power of the written word. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, I've known it intellectually. Um, but some things I've written, I mean, some things I've read lately have mm-hmm. hit places within me that spoken words haven't been able to penetrate. Ah, okay. um, and then the the process of writing for me has been both painful and so healing. Um, yeah. And knowing that, you know, people will be able to read my words and hopefully they be able to penetrate. And so that's, that, that's amazing. Tell us a little bit about your podcast, Truth and Consequences, and how that came to be. Um, if you would consider it an extension of the second wound or just kind of how, how that was birthed. Sure. Uh, it's turned out to be so much fun and <laughs> it's sort of a, I don't know. It's unexpected because um, the way it started was that my literary agent, um, who's wonderful and really devoted to my project, um, but has helped me understand that because it's such a taboo topic, sexual abuse and sexual assault, you know, maybe it's a less taboo than it was, but when we're talking about family systems, um, it's hard to break through to the publishing world who really wants the true crime or the flashy thing or the upbeat thing. So um, one of her suggestions for publishing a book was for me to start a podcast and just build my online audience that way. And because I happen to live in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, where, Mm -hmm. you know, most people know that seven and a half years ago we had, a horrible tragedy, which was the shooting, the mass shooting at our elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I live in a traumatized community and I have close friends who have been deeply impacted by the shooting of lost children and loved ones. And um, I also got very involved in activism, working to help um, prevent gun violence. And so I was really immersed in that world for a while And I learned a lot about trauma and a lot about grief in addition to what I know as a mental health professional. And so I decided to make the podcast not specifically about the second wound, but about trauma and its aftermath, because that is part of, you know, the second wound falls into that category. And I live in the aftermath of trauma. I mean, literally, um, I'm very fortunate that it, you know, it didn't take anyone that I love. So I, I feel it's important to make that distinction. Um, but it affects people that I love and it affects my community. So, um, 
So I call it Truth and Consequences, Navigating the Aftermath of Trauma. So when, you know, as a, as a person who has, who experiences the second wound, truth is a really big word for me. I told the truth. I stepped up and I said about my family, essentially that the emperor has no clothes. Mm -hmm. We are not what we appear to be and we need to look at it. And that's where I got the pushback and that's where I got the consequences. So that's how I came up with the title. Um, And my very first interview guest was my friend, David Wheeler, who just lives right in my neighborhood. He's a really good friend. He and his wife and they lost their son, Benjamin, at the age of six in the shooting. So he talks with me about um, grief and about re-victimization because it happened to him too and his wife and almost everybody involved who was affected by the shooting. So um, it's a common theme and I talk about all kinds of stuff. I, I interview professionals and I interview um, J- uh, our friend Jamie Cybers who, in- who introduced us. In fact, his story is really different. It's a story of not being re-victimized after mm-hmm. sexual abuse and having a mom who immediately stepped up and took care of him and said, this isn't your shame and we're going to protect you and we're going to hold him accountable and, and almost everybody around him did the same. Um, so that was a beautiful story. Yes. Uh, and we talk about grief and I do um, have many guests who have something to do with sexual abuse and assault. Um, but yeah, I've been really enjoying it. I didn't, I had no idea that it would be something that felt so natural to me. Um, it's hard work and I'm not saying I don't get nervous before interviewing people, which I think is kind of a good thing, but um, I'm really loving it and I'm getting a really wonderful response from it. So yeah, and I, I'm a fan of your podcast too. I think you do excellent work. Well, thank you. And I am well as well am a fan of yours. Um, a couple of things there. Like one, who knew I had this thing right was starting a podcast before writing a book. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah. See? Look, and I didn't even right have track. to pay anybody to tell me that yet. So <laughs> I, I can appreciate yeah. <laughs> when I'm on the right path and I, I didn't even know. Um, so I thought about that. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate it. Yeah. And also just thinking about, so, so there is, yeah, this whole five, six degrees of separation thing, but I, I truly believe just like when paths are supposed to cross, they will. And a, a discovery that Jamie and I d- talked about or realized is that I was supposed to be a co-guest on his podcast last year sometime. Wow. It was set up and everything. Uh, myself and my mentor, Mary Vicario, were supposed to be on his podcast and we were all scared and then I couldn't make it. So Mary mm-hmm. did it by herself. And so then we get connected and it was just kind of as he was here on my podcast, I was like, wait a minute, that you was you? That was, what? It's so it's like, wow, it took time, but it was supposed to be connected. And as you were talking, you know, I don't know if I've actually had an opportunity to say this for those who follow my podcast, but uh, starting back in 2015, I got connected with Sandy Hook Promise. 
which That's is right. one of the organizations that have um, emerged out of the tragedy mm-hmm. um, that was the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And, you know, pretty early on, I got connected with them and I'm a national uh, promise presenter and have done a lot of work with them. Mm-hmm. And so when you and I kind of got connected, it's like, wait a minute, you live in Newtown? Like, this is so crazy. Well, you we know? had a Facebook friend in common who, again, is a neighbor mm-hmm. who works for Sandy Hook Promise. Yeah. And it was like, wow. And so, yeah, con- we're connected in that way. And, and you know, something you talked about a couple of times that, you know, I just want to spend a little bit of time with is how much grief is a part of the traumatic experience and the healing. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's talked about enough. I don't think I talk about it enough. So I, this is my mental note that will live forever, that I need to do that more. Being very explicit that this process that we go through, so much of it is grief. So true. And it's a huge component of the second wound, Um, especially when you need to set boundaries or even disconnect from family members whether or not that feels like something you need to do, it's, it's a huge loss and we need to grieve our losses, whatever they are. Give them space, give them voice, let them be real. Um, Mm -hmm. A component of, so when I think developmental and relational trauma, which I talk about all the time, core issue three is reality. And it is so disturbing to a person, a child, or however old you are, a person's reality, when our internal experience is not validated in the external world. Oof, and, yeah. and, and that messes with our reality. And I think a big, huge component of the second wound is reality. You told the truth about your reality. And that was not met with validating that experience. And that deserves to be grieved. You know, we find ourselves as, you know, this podcast is coming out kind of sandwiched in between Mother's Day and Father's Day. And I personally, amongst all the various, what you would call maybe smaller holidays that are celebrated, think these two have such potential for wounding, re-wounding, opening wounds. And it's not talked about. So we haven't got to Father's Day yet, but Mother's Day. I think the thing that struck me, I made a small post um, to the impact of, you know, to the people who are re-wounded or, you know, our inner children's pain is activated by Mother's Day. Like, I see you. I want to acknowledge that because I do not think that there is enough space created for the complexities of real life in our culture. I agree. And I think that when we don't address those feelings, the person sitting there scrolling through Instagram and seeing all the love and all the Mother's Day celebration, I think what we end up feeling a little bit is shame. Absolutely. And we, <clears throat> shame is so destructive and we need to help to remove that for each other because we I... don't need to feel shamed that you know, that we're not able to have that experience. It's so true. And what I found is more often than not personal experience, as well as the tons of people that I've been able to 
you know, sit with in things like this is so much of the shame is not about what we've done, but what's been done to us. Exactly. It's carried shame that's yeah. never ours, but it's been heaped on us so long that it feels like it's just part of the fabric of who we are. And when people and are- it gets reheaped upon us. Mm-hmm. Every opportunity it can actually. Mm-hmm. And as I was, you know, looking through social media too, a few thoughts that that came to me were one, the 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 genuine um, gratitude I think I had or appreciation for those who do have those relationships with their mother, uh, mm-hmm. however they that you know adopted, fostered, birthed, and mentored, whatever. That's mm-hmm. great. But I also thought so. People fall into I think a couple of categories. One, they're the people who fake it who do the post and saying, you know, Hey, happy mother's day to my awesome mom. And the thing is, you know, I sit and I go, but I know your relationship with your mom, (laughs) you know, that's, that, that's not part of the story. Yeah. That, okay. You know, or the people who just don't say anything at all or somewhere in between. And I just think, my goodness. So I, I try to, but I honestly, I was exhausted, (laughs) but I wanted to, Mm -hmm. in some way, at least open up the space just to see, say to whoever would read it, who finds themselves in that complex part, I see you. There is room at the table for you. You, your, your reality and experience is valid. And I think with the second wound um, and the work you're doing and the work that I'm doing with people, it's just that it is, it is building a huge table where everyone gets to come and their experiences get to be real because so often that is not the case for people who have been victimized, who have been sexually assaulted, who have had sexual abuse. Um, And it not only is it shaming, but shame is isolating. And so we just sink back into our isolation for fear that people will see us in a way that feels very shame filled and man, it just breaks my heart. Yeah, I do. I, I completely agree. And that's why the work that we're doing is, is really important. And one of the things that drew me to you when I heard that interview that you did with Jamie was that you, you are, you make yourself vulnerable and you tell the truth about yourself. And I think that that's really admirable and courageous and it makes you feel safe to me because, you know, I can trust that you're willing to make yourself vulnerable and that makes me feel safer. I appreciate that so much. Um, I, I have been thinking lately, I wonder where that came from, (laughs) you Mm. know, and I, I think, you know, there is a series of things and I, I, I am endeavoring to explore more why authenticity and transparency, um, are so important to me now. And, and part of it is because I live so much of my life as a shape-shifting people pleaser for my safety mm-hmm. um, that, you know, realizing I don't have to live that way is one thing, but it is, it, it, this, this level of transparency is so important to me, not because it doesn't come with ridicule. And I think I do it. I can say a, a really dear friend of mine, uh, Sarah Buffy, she's also been a guest on the podcast. We train together mm-hmm. um, when we can. And I was doing a training, a portion of it was on developmental and relational trauma. And in this particular setting, it was the most 
outright transparent. I always use myself as examples for my life and things, but this one got pretty because it was something that was happening in my life in that moment. Mm. And I just opened up about it. I mean, I shed tears, my entire audience (laughs) shed tears. Like we were in this thing together. And at the end of it, I just sat down. It was a day's work. And what I really, really, really appreciate that Sarah did was she, she made sure I understood. Cause I don't think I did before this moment that that is a sacrifice and that she honored that. And she said, you know, I know that you do this. I know you're transparent. I know you do a lot of trainings and that this is just what you do, but we are honored to be a witness to that. And we want to let you know like that, that it means something and we are appreciative of it. And I think in that moment, I realized this is vulnerable. Like I, I have protective things that I can put up that allows me to speak those things, you know, and, and yeah, do you're not going to tell everything about yourself. Yeah. I mean, and you're still just, being selective. Yeah. And then, yeah, you're selective and you know, it's things you've worked through. Right. right? But right. then I also said that, um, for me is sometimes troubling in this experience specifically for me is coming from my experience in the church world mm-hmm. where leadership was open about the struggles they've had in the past, but until recently could not find someone who would be honest about the struggles they're going through right now. Oh, Shonda, can I comment on that? Because <laughs> yes, not, you not specifically about the church, be- mm-hmm. although, I mean, it's a huge area of concern and there's been so much abuse in the church. And believe me, I have Girl. very strong opinions about that. Um, but when you talk about, I mean, I, I have a graphic quote that I created that I post on my social media. It says something like, you want me to forgive you for what happened in the past, but the problem is it's still happening. Um, and variations on that, because what people don't realize when they say, let the past go or move forward, um, that's not the problem. We're not not moving forward. We're talking about today. Yes. Right now, today, the way that you're responding to me about the past and the present is still unacceptable. Mm-hmm. It's still dysfunctional. It's still hurtful. And so um, I think that that's sort of an excuse and a way to run away from it. And I've gotten apologies from family members that, well, if I could go back and change what happened to you, I would. And then they kind of, you know, wash their hands and walk away. And, and well, that's sort of easy to say, isn't it? Because you can't. Yeah. But I, what I'm asking for is for you to step up right now. I'm asking you for you to step up about the way you're, you're uh, not inviting me to the family birthday party because he's going to be there and he gets precedence over me. Um, <sighs> you know, I'm not stuck in the past. If anything, and this, I'm not speaking for other people. I'm just speaking for myself. I'd love to let the past go. If we can work on it and move forward, that's healthy and that's great. And that would feel wonderful. But I have to address it because it's still Mm -hmm. relevant today. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to leave my children exposed to anybody who has a history of sexual violation of another person. And that doesn't mean that I, um, that I, you know, castigate that person forever if there are extenuating circumstances and they have addressed it and worked to the best of their ability on it. But I still wouldn't let my kids around that person because you never know. 
and we owe it to minors to keep them safe. You know, things like that, which seems so logical and sensible and important and responsible, those things get pushed back all the time. And that's not okay. It's not okay. It's not. And I I thank you for sharing that point. I also think that um, it what what this brought up for me is two other ways that I've experienced and witnessed, um, maybe witnessed and maybe some experiencing second wounding to happen also is Mm -hmm. one, a person says, I'm, I'm so sorry that I wasn't there. I'm so sorry I did whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. But it, but it comes from this place of then kind of situating you to take care of them. Um, so then, Mm. you know, instead of the ownership, yeah. Instead of the ownership and the, you know what, here's the role I played in either directly offending you or not protecting you Mm -hmm. from offense. And I am so sorry about that. It turned into a shame spiral for them that you then either have to care, take them in their shame, or you go into a shame spiral because they go into a shame spiral. So I've seen that happen. And when you mentioned not being invited, um, because of preference towards the offender. Mm -hmm. I thought of something I witnessed for years in a family that I was pretty close to where the offender was always invited, Mm -hmm. but all of the victims just had to endure his presence as if nothing happened Mm -hmm. because, you know, the family was not addressing it. And part of it was um, this this kind of like, well, we don't want to break mom's heart. She doesn't know, but she did know. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and so I watched people have to suffer through being in the same space and proximity to the offender. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and just watching how that played out. And how painful it was. Like that was wounding too. That that we have to be in this same spot and pretend that we're this loving family with nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. And then, like you said, the scapegoating. And then if something, and so what would happen was conflict would break out, seemingly Mm non-related. And the biggest hell raisers were always scapegoated. Always scapegoated. Instead of, just literally saying why, right? And this fight that they would quote unquote pick was because they didn't have the space and freedom to address what was really happening. So if it became about dinner or a car or something else, then everyone wanted to scapegoat the few who were, you know, raising all the problems when underneath that was so much of these dynamics. And I, I just, yeah, it's so painful to watch that experience, knowing that a person has to be re-victimized time and time again, and that a person who is the offender not only doesn't have to accept responsibility, but still gets to quote unquote, enjoy the family system yeah. Without accountability, while all the victims are suffering, not enjoying the family system because of what happened to them. So what you're describing also reminds me of the fact that whether people 
go along and participate and show up to those events when they are not, their um, experiences and their trauma are not being honored and when it's being brushed under the rug by the family like that. It's so painful. And so what happens is what I try to point out to people is that whether you truly confront that and you point out to your family what's going on and you bring up the abuse and the offender and perhaps you choose to, um, you know, make a stink or stay away or uh, disconnect yourself from family members. The, the fact is that even if you don't do those things, the truth is still hurting you. It's still there and it's still damaging you. And whether families choose to look at what's really going on or not, it's still going on. And I think that's what people kind of lose sight of, if that makes sense to you. Oh, it totally makes sense. And I think um, there is this idea, this ideology that people should just get over those things and that they think that the passage of time should Mm -hmm. be enough to make a person move past it. Um, Two areas I see how this plays out um, is one, a person whose life is so impacted adversely by the trauma and the abuse that they have a challenging time um, with outcomes, their health, financial, you know, and things like that. And then they get scapegoated further. Right. That's right. You know, it's easy they're to just pointed the, them and say, see, they're, they're full of problems. Yeah. You need to listen to that. Yeah. Like, what are you saying? Like, psh, don't even listen to that. She or he is making all these bad choices. Right. Oh, right. Okay. Right. So that's one avenue that just drives me crazy. The other though, is when the victim, um, outwardly is successful and, um, quote unquote, well-adjusted. Mm-hmm. then people kind of make up that it couldn't have been that big of a deal. Look at you. Oh my gosh. Yes. I've seen that. You I've know, seen. you look, mm-hmm. look at, look at all you've done for yourself. Look at yeah. your family. Look, look at your education. Look at how much money you make. Look at where you live. Look at the car you drive. Look, look at how, you know, look at how you look. And it's like that in and of itself is enough for people to say, Psh, okay, so get over it. You know what I mean? It couldn't mm-hmm. have been that and bad. It's despite what happened. It's because we had the courage to address it and work through it and get the support that we need. And we probably need to continue doing that, perhaps for our whole lives. Absolutely. And I think one thing, like I I had to take a deep breath as you were saying that, because I could feel myself Mm. rising, is that people don't understand how hard it is to persevere and to build resilience when these things have happened to you. And a theme of my life um, has been that people have always told me, like, I make things look easy. And so my speaking, 
uh, for as long as I can remember, it's just a gift. I, I, I can speak in front of a million people. I'm fine. Like, and you know, public speaking is a really big deal for a lot of people in regards to fear. Oh yeah. And so used to be that way. the fact that I can do it and I do it so naturally, you know, people say you really make that look easy and where, and so I've gotten that, but where it really, really, really hit the head for me is when people would say that to my husband and I, after we had our twins, like you oh, guys yeah. just, I mean, you just make it seem easy. Like it's no big deal. And it's just like, I mean, okay, I guess. I, I know they're trying to be complimentary. Right, yes. But come to my house at two in the morning. Yeah. Okay. When you get one down and the other one is up and then you get them both down and then your son has a nightmare. And then somebody, I mean. So you don't want people assuming it's easy just no. because what they're looking at is Ugh. working really hard to make it run correctly. An outcome is not a predictor of ease. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, God, yeah, I mean, we we are a team, we're solid, we have this thing, but it, ha- it, ugh, it has been hard. Of just course. in talking about like nurturing three kids, two of which are twins and, you know, all of this stuff. But then when I think about my life, And how hard it has been to manage all of these internal experiences while producing outwardly and all of that stuff. It's not even that I'm looking for people to be like, you're awesome. You know, it's just to realize that it's hard and the same appreciation you have for me, have for the person that's struggling the one who can't make it, the one you yeah. want to talk down to, don't other them. Yeah. You know, we need so to have room in our hearts to understand where these things are coming from, or at least just give people the benefit of the doubt and know that we all have pain. And that's what you're describing. Also, that's why your transparency is so valuable to other people because you're saying, well, it might look easy, but I'm not going to pretend that. I don't feel like I'm falling apart sometimes. <laughs> Not pretend at all. And that, yeah. cause that doesn't serve anybody. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it's yeah. <laughs> and, and going back to, you know, the description of the family that is scapegoating the family member and, you know, trying so hard not to address what they want and need to, you know, um, bring attention to by not addressing it, the other problem is that we're not stopping the cycle. And the cycle, especially of family sexual abuse, is so much wider and so much more damaging and insidious than any of us really realize. Yeah. And this is what I've been able, it, it breaks my heart as I peel back layers, whether it's my own family on both sides, or whether it's the clients that come to me and the people that write to me, it's just, it's sort of everywhere. And in families where we see sexual abuse, it's usually in many branches of the family. And it's in large part because there is damage that is being carried on, whether people reoffend or are drawn to um, partners that are not safe or don't open their eyes to being careful with their own minor children. These things need to be addressed in order to keep our society safe and to keep our vulnerable minor children safe from this very traumatic experience. And I feel extremely passionate about that fact. Absolutely. And and just to be clear, I think it's helpful also to say that 
I think people, because it is so insidious, it is it is happening in so many places, mm-hmm. you know, at the, you know, I don't want to sound insensitive, but if you're a guest, you know, listening, it it is a high probability that it's happening in your family somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I want to take away this notion that this is only penetration or sexual touch. Yeah. I yeah. want to Even make sure that itself can be traumatic. Yes. The grooming process, meaning you are preparing not just the victim, but the family in the community to mm-hmm. give you access to that young person. This is sexual joking. This is yeah. showing pornographic material. Mm-hmm. This is encouraging um, minor children to do things sexually to themselves while you watch or someone watches or to someone else. And, you know, my introduction to this field, to the mental health field was working with adolescent sex offenders. Oh, wow. Um, in a residential program. And while all of the youth that I worked with were offenders, they were offended and, and how this is perpetuated. And so, yeah, I'm very passionate about it as well. And how many things that I, I would, I did not consider my experiences to be sexual abuse until I had a greater understanding working mm-hmm. through this program, identifying in, 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 just to be fair, working in this program, but that wasn't what helped me understand it. It was realizing I had trauma in the larger sense. Yeah. And then, well, what do you mean? And, and you never, I never thought of a similar aged peer sexually touching me or cause to making me do things to them or doing things to me sexually as sexual abuse. It was play. It was and they took advantage of that. that yep. You didn't understand that. And it was connection. I, I didn't realize until much later that um, an aunt's husband verifying that I had in fact taken a shower by placing his hand between my thighs was sexual abuse. And in all of these things that I, you know, I had this list. Okay, fine. Peer, um, you know, similar age peers doing sexual things to me, very overt sexual things. Okay, I got it. Being raped at 14. Got it. But now realizing that a cousin that I had just met at a family reunion, giving me a hug and trying to tongue kiss me. Not okay. So it's like all of these experiences that I'm now looking at that like, Might have felt kind of like, ew, uh, that didn't feel good. No, this is not okay. Well, you're seeing a pattern in the family and these are each components to it. Yeah. And so I I wanted to say those things out loud because it is so easy to hear this and, and, and and be, you know, thankful for Miranda and I, and it can be interesting and you can be listening, but not realizing that we're talking to you and that these That's things right. are, are not okay. And you deserve to grieve and heal from these things that you may not have even known were a wound. Yeah. And, and I will add to the, the awareness of danger aspect of it too, that while you and I are describing um, extended family uh you know, dysfunction, that we can see patterns running through the family. 
it really, I don't mean to scare people, but I think it's important to understand that it really can happen to any family, even really conscientious, wonderful parents who are aware of this and being careful that, and I, and I say that in part because I don't want there to be an automatic judgment. I don't want people to feel that they let, um, you know, that it's their fault if it does happen to their child. I think that it's so important to understand how best to protect our kids and to always be on our guard and careful about it. But because offenders are so smart and wily and they are opportunists, even in the even in families where parents are so careful and loving and the kids have healthy self-esteems, you know, those are all protective, Mm -hmm. but they're no guarantees. So just, you know, we need to really keep our eyes out. And then if something does happen, make sure that our kids are well equipped to be able to share that because it's, it's a lot more difficult than, than I think parents realize for kids to be honest about those kind of things, or even in like, like you're describing to even understand them. Absolutely. You're so right. And one final appeal for me um, that I want to do is I, I want to appeal to black people, people of color, mm-hmm. um, because there is a part, a large section of our communities that don't believe this happens in our community. When I worked mm-hmm. for a community mental health organization, it was under the umbrella of the archdiocese. Mm-hmm. And uh, some years ago, they instituted this process that any person who um, works in any capacity under the umbrella of the archdiocese and who will have access to children have to... Um, go through Virtus training, which was the archdiocese or the Catholic church's um, childhood sexual abuse training to help people recognize like what it could look like. And honestly, the first version was quintessential. You know, the offender was a chubby white guy, middle-aged with glasses. And it's like, come on, like (laughs) I can't with this (laughs) lifetime movie, but Uh, At least when I was still there, they did redo it and it became a little more concrete and reasonable to what grooming is and stuff like that. But I bring it up because just based on, and as a Virtus trainer, I didn't just train people who were in the organization. I could train people, people who were, could come to this training, even if you didn't work there is my point. And I remember an older black woman coming who worked in some capacity with the archdiocese with children and going through, and and I appreciated her honesty, which was, I mean, good information, but this don't happen in our communities. And I wow. almost fell out. I, I mean, it's like, oh yeah. So when people are outraged at the Catholic priest who are sexually abusing children, yes, it is outrage worthy. But please mm-hmm. believe that in every religious institution, Regardless of belief system and color, it is happening. Families. I mean, when there is a, when there is a power differential Mm -hmm. with access to children, it is happening. It doesn't have to be, but it has the potential to happen. And I just say that because so many um, families of color that I have experienced uh, casually or professional, personally or professionally, are so blindsided because they truly don't believe that it happens. And it does. 
I, I wasn't aware of that. And that's really important oh. to draw attention to because in fact, statistically, it's a higher proportion in communities of color and in any um, population that is more vulnerable in the society as well. Yes. And many of those cultures are ingrained and indoctrinated from a young age. What happens in this house stays in this house. Uh, and I yeah. get that. Because the system that we protected. live in, this world system is not created for us, right? right. And, and right, you, and there's a sense of protection that ironically is not being protective. Absolutely. So look, if you can't trust the police, don't call the police. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, sure. So when these things are happening, no, I get it. This is not an indictment, but or this is real. maybe it's not safe to call CPS on some, uh, absolutely. You know, more so than the general population. Absolutely. But that makes us more vulnerable. Absolutely. And I definitely right. wanted to kind of put that, you know, put that out there um, because really it's important. important. Yeah. And so. we, we need to make sure that there is help, appropriate help for every family and every individual and that it, it shouldn't be less safe and it shouldn't feel less safe. We have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. And I am honored to be laboring next to you and alongside of you in doing the work. So as we prepare uh, to wrap up, I would love for you to share with my listeners how they can find you if they wanted to contact you, how they can gain access to some of your writing, um, and just in any way, if they're intrigued by what they've heard today. Great. Thank you. Um, my second wound account is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And I have a website that I'm very proud of that has um, information and comfort and survivor stories and articles that I've written, as well as uh, resources and my personal coaching information. So that's secondwound.com. Um, and then there's also my website for the podcast, which is truthandconsequences.com. And that's spelled out with it's um truth and the letter n consequences.com which also has a social media presence um and yeah i would love for people to tune into my podcast as well which you can find you know anywhere you find podcasts or the episodes are on the website awesome thank you so much miranda um that information will be in the show notes so that you can Great. find her um and uh get in touch with her if you would like and so miranda as we finish up i always would like my guests to share a fun little known or interesting fact about themselves that just kind of creates a well-rounded view of who they are as a person so what would you like to share with us today um well what pops into my head is uh something about me as a kid that relates to today, which is that this podcast I'm doing is not my first experience with broadcasting. When I was a little kid, um, my father was an animator for Sesame Street for many, many years. Hmm. And so he was an artist and a painter, but uh, animation was one of his many talents. And so on occasion, he would have me lend my voice to the animated spots that he did. So you can still find those, I think, on YouTube even, which is pretty fun. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that is a super cool little, well, well, little known fact, but 
um, that you are out there in the world. Your voice has been in the world for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm sort of circling back to that now. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. Well, Miranda, thank you so much for one, being a guest on my podcast, sharing the awesome work that you do, but um, being a fellow laborer and a friend. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining thank you, me. Thank you, LaShonda. It's really my pleasure. And I wanted to send that right back to you and say thank you for the wonderful work that you're doing and for your vulnerability and courage and for opening up to, you know, forming a friendship with me. It's really valuable to me. So thank you. My pleasure. Well, to all of my guests, I thank you so much for tuning in. If you would like to get in contact with me, please reach my website, www thelaborsoflove.com we're on the major we're on all of the major social media outlets don't forget our youtube channel where every thursday we put out a therapy thursday video subscribe over at youtube and don't forget to like rate review and share this podcast we have a lot of great content and tons of great guests um and so until we connect again you all be well 